Thanks so much for coming on today, Sharwan. I'm really excited for this conversation. I think to start, let's talk about your childhood. There are things we learn from our childhood, and there are things we have to unlearn as we grow up. Talk to me about your childhood and how has it contributed to who you are today? What are things you had to unlearn from it, and what are things that helped you? <laughs> I'm not sure we have enough time to talk about my childhood, but uh, <laughs> we can give it a go. I'll try. I can try and be brief. <sighs> my childhood. So I'm. If the accent doesn't give it away or hasn't given it away, I'm English by background. So I was born and bred in the UK. Grew up in a in a city called Birmingham. and i'm kind of the oldest of three which i think probably plays a little bit into me and, and how i am how would i describe my childhood my childhood was definitely full of ups and downs from a young age i think most of my family would describe me as quite a difficult child and it was pretty often that my grandparents would be more than happy to take my brother and sister for the weekend but would say you know Sharon can stay at home with with you guys to my parents that was fairly fairly common um you know whether or not it was i had some element of attention deficit issues or as i later found out when i was about 13 14 that i was dyslexic um and so i think you know probably a combination of those two things factored in but i definitely was a bit of a trouble child and you know academically that kind of factored in so was, if i read back through my school reports it's very often that my teachers would say you know very able child but just not trying hard enough or not applying himself or um all things along those lines um and i think the real thing that changed was when i was about 13 the school that i had sub- subsequently started at had a teacher that was specialized in special needs and thought so oh, maybe actually there's something there and so i went and got tested and you know i have mild to moderate dyslexia and quite specifically around languages um and in retrospect i think i can see that the dyslexia has definitely changed the way or has had an impact in the way in which i function and the way in which i see things the way in which i learn things the my nightmare as a child even now to be honest is being asked to spell something because i spell phonetically it's like cat to me is not c a t it's kata that's how i spell spell in my head and i kind of have to go through the spelling and then imagine the word and then read it out c a t for me to be able to spell something as people expect um so that's always a bit of a nightmare for me and being asked to stand up and write on a flipboard is is another nightmare um but in in a way that's a deficit but has also changed me massively imagine being in an exam writing an essay for an hour and you're writing you want to write a sentence i don't know let's think of a word like discussion right the discussion that was happening within the class 9 times out of 10 i'll have no problems writing spelling the word discussion one time out of 10 just in exam conditions i might freeze I, i'll forget how to write the word and so i suddenly need to mid sentence the class was having a conversation about where as opposed to having a discussion and so i think after years and years of having to very quickly change sentences on the fly 
has meant that the way in which I think and the way in which I speak has changed, that I'll you know, naturally think of slight variations on the same theme to match what I'm wanting to say or to match what other people are saying. Um, and so I think that's definitely been a big thing. Things that I've learned has definitely been that, right? I now know how I learn what I need to do, that if I have someone there to keep me accountable or I have something to keep me accountable, that's a big driver for me. I will book random things or I will set myself a task where someone else is involved. And for me, that's a really big way of learning. When I started at university, long story short, a lot of my best friends are non-medics and they did electrical engineering or they did chemistry and, and a whole bunch of my friends were studying IT related courses, kind of data science or, or computer science. And they had persuaded me or had said, oh, you should start to learn to code. That's going to be forever valuable. And so I started off by learning HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And I did the courses, I think like lots of people. But the thing that I did to drive myself was I have all these, I, I have leather shoes because I was a medical student and I was going to the hospitals and I needed smart shoes. And I think as I'd started to buy leather shoes, I realized that you should take care of them, that you should get them sold and resold. You should have um, kind of rubber soles put on them if you want to keep them protected for a long, long period of time. And so I had a cobbler down the road that I used to go to to get my shoes sold. He had no website, no online presence whatsoever. So for me, that was my driver. I went into the shop and I said, hey, Matt, you don't have a website. I'm starting to learn how to code. I have a proposition. Would you be willing to let me build you a website, set up the SEO, set you up on Google, and in exchange, if you see an increase in foot traffic, will you do my, my shoes for free? That was my that was my bargain, right? And I did it. Right? I went away and I had my little project and I had Matt who was now relying on me. That was my impetus to actually do what I had set out to do. And over the course of a month or two, I kind of learned how to tie everything together. And so how to build the front end and the static pages in HTML and CSS and then build dynamic content with JavaScript and then how to I was originally hosting it on GitHub for free because like, it was, this was a, a, a cashless exchange. So I didn't want to pay for hosting. And so I'd uploaded it to GitHub and set a CNAME page and, and kind of the website was up for free. And then we migrated it over to a, a normal um, server domain and, and had the, the dynamic JavaScript elements uh, added in. So like, I know that that's what I need to push myself. And so I think that's what I've learned over my childhood is I think people often don't know themselves, that they don't necessarily know how to get the best out of themselves. But there's always this thing of as long as you're good enough, then no one pushes you to be better, right? If you do well enough at exams, but you're very intelligent, how do you know that the way in which you've learned for the exams is optimal for you? All you know is that it was optimum to be good enough to get that A or to get that A star or A plus in the exam doesn't necessarily mean that you writing it out a hundred times was the best way of learning it. 
right? Maybe you needed to dictate it into an iPhone and a memo and listen it to it, listen to it in the car a hundred times. And actually that would be a much better way of you remembering it. Um, and so I think the dyslexia has definitely fed into that. But as soon as we found out that I was dyslexic and I had these very specific areas where I had issues with, suddenly there's this whole structure around coping with those and potentially making them work in your favor, like taking those things that are difficulties and turning them into positives. And so I think that's then begun to pervasively spread into the rest of my life and, and how I see things. Things that I would unlearn. <laughs> it's a good question. I think the one thing that comes to mind, and it's topical because of a recent conversation I've had, is knowing your self-worth that when I was going through school, particularly pre-dyslexia diagnosis, I was constantly being told I wasn't trying hard enough and I wasn't putting in effort. And on the sports side of things, I ended up leaving school being, and for US listeners, varsity sports level in a number of sports. But it was almost by happy accident, right? The coaches didn't even realize that I was playing varsity other sports. I was just kind of the, we need a 13th person, or SP is the 13th person on the list, so he'll go in. Um, and so I was never like I individually identified by any sports coach as having some degree of very high level of athletic ability. I was kind of just good enough. Um, and so I spent all of my school life, and I think even into med school, thinking like that. And it wasn't until really leaving med school starting to practice that I think suddenly things changed that people would say oh you're actually quite good at doing this or we you went above and beyond suddenly the the language changes and it changes your confidence and you suddenly realize oh actually I can do something and I can do something well and you know what I've always been able to do these things I just never have had someone tell me that I can and that's definitely changed. Like now, I know what my self-worth is and I know what I can do, what I can't do. And for the things that I can do, I ask for the appropriate value for my time and energy and expertise. There you go. It's my long answer to that first question. <laughs> I think knowing your self-worth is something we could all come to sooner in life and too many of us come to that evaluation in our 30s or beyond yeah feel free yeah, to so answer true. this question with as much or as little specificity as you'd like do you think life happens to you or do you think you make life happen all right so i'll, I'll start my favorite word is it depends um that is kind of the running joke amongst my friends is if you're ever going to ask me a question, my first response will be, it depends. And, you know, I think this is a prime example. It depends. I think life does happen and there are definitely elements of right place, right time. And feeding into that right skills, you know, is kind of part and parcel of that. If I think about me, I was in London. I had had businesses before being at med school but I was in London starting med school 2000 and kind of mid 2000s and 
I was beginning to learn HTML, CSS, JavaScript. At that point, I had also started to learn Python. And I think being in London in 2006, seven, having been involved with businesses and knowing some degree of kind of technology meant that I had the right skills. I was in the right place and I was there at the right time to begin working with early stage health tech companies. I mean, it was still called eHealth, mHealth at that time. It wasn't until Health 2.0 came, I think around 2011 or 12 in London that kind of digital health as a term started to be used. But, you know, that meant that I got to know some of now the kind of the OGs of the British health tech scene right at the very beginning. Had I been in, you know, Nottingham or Liverpool or somewhere else in the country, there's plenty of technology and plenty of really great ideas being developed, particularly now, all over the UK. But at the time, London was really the epicenter of all of it. And so had I been anywhere else, I probably wouldn't have had the exposure or the opportunities that I had. So that's an element of I made some of that because I had learned to code and I had made a deliberate decision to go to London for other reasons. I didn't know I was going to go into health tech at the time, but like, I made those decisions. But then there was also an element of life happened alongside, right? I, we don't live in little bubbles. We live in this wider landscape. And so it happened that health technology as an industry was beginning to flourish. It was particularly beginning to flourish in London. Those people in London building these technologies, building these companies, needed the help of someone that understood tech and business, but maybe more importantly, was also quite good on the clinical side and could bring that perspective in. Like those aren't me building or me making those things happen. That happened on the side, but you know, it's kind of a, a clashing of two worlds. So I, I think it's a bit of both. And I'm pretty sure I can go through everything that's happened to me, and I'm sure we all can, and say there are elements of this that happened and could happen because I had done the work, right? I had learned a skill or I'd developed certain knowledge or I had made the move to, to move, I'd made the decision to move to a city because of increased exposure to a, a particular industry. Those things are on you. You've done those. And you should be, you should pat yourself on the back. But then there are other things around like random conversations in a bar that happen and you suddenly start chatting and you realize, oh, there's a connection here. And you have a lifelong friend who then connects you to someone that's not really looking for an open position, not really looking for a position or to fill a position. But after meeting, you says, you know what, this is the person we need. Like, life makes those things happen. Can't plan for them. They happen whether you want them to happen or not. I agree. There's nuance and complexity in most questions and answers. And it depends <laughs> is usually a good place to start. You said you were a difficult child, but you were also the oldest of three. <laughs> and you went to medical school. Some people would say those things are not aligned. Talk to me about being the oldest. And let's go deeper in being difficult. And how did that play out to your journey to med school? I would classify myself as difficult. And I would think 
most people should be difficult as partly it means they're standing up for what they believe in for themselves and being normal is being conformist which is arguably uh, damaging as an entrepreneur it's how did it how did it feed him it's a good question i'm not sure i've ever thought about it like that so i think being i don't think any of this happened consciously or deliberately but i think being a difficult child meant that my parents in particular were constantly looking for ways to keep me occupied and part of that was sports and activities and so i you know wasn't a bad figure skater and i played played ice hockey can you, if you can believe it i played badminton at a high level i swam right i like did all of these things i think because my parents kind of just like they actually just wanted to tire me out so that i would go to sleep at a reasonable hour but you know those things actually ended up being really pivotal and and quite important to making me into the person that I am now right? I still run every day I'm still playing sports at a high level and you know that there are skills that you pick up in all of these things that you then pull into other parts of your life everything is related in some way or form that's that's my philosophy you can be a, a medic and be a doctor but there are skills that translate to other things medicine doesn't happen in its again own little silo that you can take one concept and apply it to lots of other places and so I think the things that I'd learned as a child then helped me work in teams helped me to understand the importance of training for example I remember playing badminton and we would have these sessions and there's this thing called shadowing in badminton which is where you're pretty much just practicing footwork so there's you have your record in your hand, you're on the court, start in the middle, and then you're doing footwork over and over and over again. And the reason why you do that is so that when you're in, in a match and you're fighting for a point, if the shuttle goes into one corner, you don't have to think about your footwork. It just happens because you've spent the last five years of your life two, three times a week spending an hour just shadowing your footwork. And so... You kind of take that and you apply it to somewhere else and you say okay well how do i get good at this particular thing is that something that would benefit from a shadowing style of doing something uh, doing it right do i need to practice it over and over and over again to then make sure that it becomes muscle memory or kind of knowledge brain memory um you know think about how we learn for medicine it's all pattern recognition the more patterns you see the better you get now do you need to understand those patterns see those patterns before you can then pick them up do you just need to see as many as you can do you need to be more conscious about it like there are different layers and complexity to the onion um and i think the, that kind of being a being a more difficult child definitely meant my parents did things that then impacted my life further down the line um how did it lead me to med school that I'm not really sure I think actually the big shift was 
at 13 suddenly being told oh you know it isn't that you aren't trying it's that actually there are things you can do you there is an issue or there are what's the word there are certain areas certain things you are always going to find difficult there happen to be ways in which you can get around that that changed going back to your question do you make your life or does life present you with opportunities right that was one of those things i happened to go to a school where there was a teacher that specialized in or was doing more and more specialization in educational needs and highlighted me as someone that may benefit from being tested right different school different time that may not have happened and my path my journey might have been very different but as soon as that was recognized suddenly my performance started to get a bit better and so academically i was then performing at the right kind of level and i'm, I'm definitely the kind of person that tests well put me in an exam as long as i've you know done enough work i'll do pretty well and so during the year i'd often be told off by teachers and say oh you're not trying hard enough da, 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 da. thankfully the british system relies heavily on exams it's a big component of your final grade because i'm a good test taker it meant that academically i stayed kind of at the right level to then apply for med school and, and subsequently get it i'm not sure i completely answered your question but you know, it gives you a little bit of a flavor no you did we can talk about standardized testing and education. Let's keep that for later because I have too much to say about that. And most <laughs> of it is negative. Okay. Let's, I'll ask you uh, a shorter question. Why medical school? It's a good question. And I don't think I've ever really figured out the exact answer i remember so when i was at med school later down the line further down further through med school i began doing or being part of the interviews for med school and one of the questions that's very typical in the uk is why do you want to be a doctor and one of the things that question always grated me because you know by that point i realized i had no idea that i wanted to be a doctor specifically the operative word being doctor because a doctor being a doctor is a profession and i don't think at 15 16 which is really when you start making that decision in the uk i had any idea of what the profession of being a doctor was like what i did know is that i wanted to go to med school and so i kind of pushed in the interview committees to change our question our stock question from why do you want to be a doctor to why do you want to go to med school and it suddenly opened up people's ability to answer the question I think more truthfully because if you get asked why do you want to be a doctor and you don't know the answer you automatically start confabulating you start making something up or you start reciting the answer that you think the person needs to hear whereas if you get asked why do you want to go to med school you can be truthful about it and you can say, well, I want to go to med school. So for me, I had, in terms of my A-levels, so my final exams or my final subjects, I was doing maths, 
chemistry, biology, and fine art. Loved biology, enjoyed chemistry, loved fine art, and enjoyed maths. I think I have a love-hate relationship with maths. I enjoy maths now. I think I didn't really enjoy maths quite so much back then. But on the biology and chemistry side, I really enjoyed biology. I really enjoyed human biology. I knew, though, that I didn't want to study biology as a pure subject. Because in the UK, it's not a liberal arts system. You go in, you pick your subject, and you started at 18. So you're doing biochemistry or straight biology or biomedical sciences, right? You're doing a, a specific degree in a subject. And so I knew then that I didn't want to do a pure biology degree or a, a, or a subset of biology. I knew I didn't want to do chemistry as a pure degree, but I enjoyed both subjects. I enjoyed art and I enjoyed humanities and I enjoy being with people, part of teams, having a job that kind of active or doing a degree that was active and you were on your feet and doing stuff and, and interacting with people. And as soon as you start to lay these things out on a piece of paper, almost like a checklist of what am I looking for in a degree, you whittle the choices down pretty quickly to veterinary science, I think, ticks a lot of those boxes, dentistry, medicine, nursing school, physician's assistants, you know, as we now know them, but wasn't a degree back then, but is now, right? So you start to end up with these mostly health-related degrees, professions. And you know, I will be very honest, my grades were good. And so there's definitely an element of, out of all of those things, what's the best that I can choose? And it kind of ends up being veterinary science, dentistry, medicine. Didn't want to work with animals. Didn't want to work with just teeth. And so I'm like naturally left with a final option, medicine. In retrospect, that's probably the subconscious thinking that was going on, the truthful thinking that was going on, why I went to med school. I'm not sure I knew at that time that I wanted to be a doctor. As it happened, I loved practicing. Still miss it to this day. I'll be moving back to the UK soon. And when I do, there is a high chance that I'll reinstate my license and practice at least a little bit because I loved it. Really, really enjoyed it. But did I know that at 15 when I first made the decision or began the path to med school and at 18 when I started? No, not in the slightest. What advice would you give your 15-year-old self if you could go back in time? Ah, <laughs> uh, what advice would I give? It's tough. I think if I if I would the one thing I would have wanted is to have found a mentor in some ways or a a more senior figure that could have given me some good advice when it came to making some of these big life decisions. Now I say that I say that that's something I would have liked. I don't think that's advice I would give myself as a 15-year-old because knowing the environment and the people I was surrounded with, I don't think there is anyone in there in my network that could have been that person. But my parents had gotten green cards and my parents moved to the States pretty much as I started med school. But that process began a little earlier. 
And so I knew that they were going. And so I had applied to US schools, US colleges. I had a bunch of very good offers. And the advice given to me was I had these offers at Imperial and a few other universities in the UK for straight medicine. So the advice was, you should choose one of the UK universities because you'll go straight into med school and you'll come out with a medical degree. And then you still have a green card, you can go to the States. The reasoning for that was if I go to the States, you know, I had a offer at Berkeley, NYU, Yale. Even if I'd gone to the, any of those three, I'd still only be doing a bachelor's and then I'd have to apply for med school afterwards and there was no guarantee I'd get it. Like now I know that actually that's probably not the best advice to have given. But there was no one I had access to at the time that would have told me any differently. So I think now I know that, you know, within my network and for my kids, I'll always be looking out for people that could help and provide some insight into some of these big life decisions. So it's not really advice because I could say it to my 15-year-old self, but it wouldn't, wouldn't make a difference. Um, but I don't regret anything. I, I'm very happy where I am now. I think part of regret is making a decision that you, or making decisions that you regret. But realistically, in pretty much all the decisions I've made in my life, if I go back and were given the same decision to make a hundred times over, I would have made the same decision a hundred times over. So if that's the case, why would I regret the decision? Because there's no scenario where I would have done anything differently. Um, and so I don't regret where I am now. Therefore, I think I'd say to my 15 year old self, just you know, keep enjoying life and everything will be fine. It's a long road, but everything will be fine. I'm happy to hear that, Sharma. Let's come back to the present. As a question that came to me as you were talking. If you could pick a career knowing you would be successful, so if you're an artist, you're Rembrandt, if you're a, a composer, you're Mozart, if you play basketball, you're LeBron James, you know you're going to be the top of the game. What career would you pick? <laughs> oh, we're getting into fantasy now. What would I want to do? So I would be an artist. I would be an abstract painter similar to Mondrain or Van Gogh and I would paint all day and lose track of time and humanity and being a person altogether. Okay, so I think I would love to do that. I'm going to be, this is going to be the most you can start with underwhelming it. answer, I think, or I think you're getting a laugh at this answer. You know what? I actually don't think I would do anything differently. There are lots of things I would want to do and I would love to do, but I think for short periods of time. If I were LeBron James, I was playing the highest level of basketball, one of the greatest in the world. I'm not sure that I personally would want pressure that LeBron James feels every game that he plays and it's not just the pressure that he feels during the game it's that when he goes to dinner with his wife the paparazzi outside 
Let's say uh, let's say Lee Chong Lee or Linda. Let, let's say a badminton superstar. <laughs> but see, even for like even badminton, I love playing and I love playing now. And even hockey, I that field hockey is my primary sport nowadays. I love playing it, but it tickles it ticks a couple of boxes and it tickles a couple of things for me. But you know, actually the the way that I've set my life up now is that I run a business or technically part of two businesses. They are one of the, you know, without tooting horns, Farmstars, for example, is is the premier accelerator for companies trying to break into the pharma space. There is no one that can compete. We are the best of the best. And at Strategy Health, on the consulting side, we do software as a medical device. And there aren't that many companies that do do what we do or have done what we've done like we are maybe not a lebron james but you know we are a lakers player level in the industries that we we play in but you know what i get an evening when i can go play hockey and i have weekends when i can paint and draw and i can go for dinner without being bothered by anyone but I still get respect in my professional life. And I still feel value. Like I feel like I'm creating value. And you know, those are the things that are actually important to me now is that I'm doing something that I want to do, that I have autonomy in what I do and how I do it, that what I'm doing brings value. Did I say that? I think I said that already. Um, and I get to do lots of things. I want to play sport. I want to paint and draw. I want to sculpt. I want to have a good professional career. I want to have time with my kids, time with my wife. Like those are the things that are important to me. It's what I want from, from a career. And, and you know what? I'm lucky. I, I, I have that. So, yeah, it'd be nice to be LeBron James for the day. It'd be nice to be Rembrandt for the day. But I think to feel and, and experience what it might be like, I'm not sure that I would want to do it full time. I will refine my answer based on your <laughs> answer. And for similar reasons, I think the more experience I gain, and that's a nicer way of saying the older I get, um, <laughs> the more I value balance, the more I value spending time with my family. And I think art is something I can see my, losing myself in and there being nothing else in the world. And I think that is a damaging way to live. Even though you might produce mm -hmm. things that live on forever. Yeah. It's not fair to myself or my family. I think it's going back to that knowing yourself bit, right? That now we call it mindful. Now it has a name that's in the mainstream, mindfulness. So we get told to do mindfulness because if you do mindfulness and you're focused on one particular task and the action of doing that task, it takes everything away, right? It lets the rest of the world just drift off and all the worry and all the doubt and the anxiety, it gives you some respite, which means that when you suddenly get focus back on the rest of life, you've had some respite, you've had a chance to relax and breathe. And so you can just tackle it all with a fresh head. 
mean, I have unknowingly been doing mindfulness for the whole of my life. I, you know, I, I can't reach it, but there's a little R2-D2 metal sculpture up there that my sister bought me for Christmas. And it's these tiny little finickety pieces of metal that you have to bend. And I have you know, an old little pair of, well, these ophthalmology tongs, but um, like little pair of uh, tweezers. And you have to use them to just bend the pieces of metal and thread them in. And you know what? That was my little evening hobby. And I was doing that at midnight, one in the morning. I was maybe midway through a document. And you know what? I thought, I've had enough. I'm just going to take my mind off it. And I had this little sculpture that I put together. And there are lots of things like that. I, I Something, one of my fun facts that's on the web, Farm Stars website is that I sew and I, I can make clothes. And so I have lots of these little projects in the in the closets of shirts that I'm altering or making or a pair of almost finished a pair of gloves. And those again are things that I'll just do in the middle of the night when can I have had enough? And it's mindfulness because I'm having to really concentrate on a very specific task and I can't think about anything else. Um, and you can get that from your job, but you don't need to do that 100% of the time, at least not for me. Being able to do it every couple of days is enough for me to stay sane and enjoy the other things in life that are happening. And so, you know, that's kind of, I guess, how I've built my life up. And I know me, that I have these little projects that are all in various stages of, of completion. And over time, one by one by one, they get completed and I'll move on to the next thing. So it might be a drawing, it might be a painting, or it might be this little R2-D2 sculpture or, or a shirt that needs altering. Those are my mindfulness moments. I don't need that necessarily from a job, but I do know that I need it every now and then. So that's how I built my life. I agree. I, I, I don't think we spoke about this. I did a Vipassana a while ago, which is a 10 days long meditation. Mm -hmm. I'll talk about it in detail in a later video. But being able to sit in stillness by yourself in your own presence is incredibly important. When I meet people, I ask them certain questions to categorize them. <laughs> this is something I need to stop doing. But I want to categorize people into a strong bias or proclivity to action or a strong bias or proclivity towards planning. And I won't ask the questions I ask them because this, this is not a test. <laughs> but which category do you think you fall in? And do you think that category is innate or learned? Again, it depends. <laughs> if I think about me making decisions, it'll be it'll be a mixture of both i'd say my initial reaction is towards ac action maybe it's not the right word i think it's more about actually how you how you approach something i'm very focused on or a lot of how i approach things is based on pattern recognition 
my gut over the years has gotten better and better and better. And as I see more things, experience more things, my gut feeling continues to get better. And so if I see something or need to make a decision, I will first just think, what is my gut reaction? And there are times where my gut reaction will be very strong for a particular type of decision, right? Either buy this or don't buy this, or this seems fishy. We need to take a step back and look at, look at it in more detail, or all of this seems to check out. Let's just go for it so we don't miss the boat. Like, I'll go to my gut, and my gut will tell me strong, strongly one way or the other or something in the middle. And if I don't have a strong gut feeling, then I'll go into planning and analytics mode. And I maybe do it a bit too much. I'm very, very pragmatic in, in how I see things is very analytical. But that always follows or proceeds gut, which will dictate whether or not I just do something or don't do something. And so there are lots of things where I've just made a split second decision. Oh, you know what? Let's, let's just do that now. I don't know why. I can't, you know, I'm sure if I were to take a step back and list it, I could come up with a hundred reasons why I'm coming up with that decision. But my gut tells me that that's the right decision. So I, I go with it. And I'm constantly trying to think back at decisions and experiences to just make my gut better because that makes me make better decisions more quickly. Um, and so, again, I don't think I really answered your question, <laughs> um, but it would be gut feeling first, strong yes or no, go with it. If it's somewhere in the middle, take a step back and think through it in more detail. I think that's fairly, I think that's nature. No, sorry, I think that's nurture. I think I've learned that over time. Didn't, my gut today is better than it was yesterday which is better than it was a year ago i don't think that's i think there may be some nature to it right there's probably some proclivity that's a bit innate but i think we can all get there think about med, med think about medicine you're a gp you're a pcp someone comes in through the door there's a i remember one of my first instagram posts was uh, a uh, a question, an EMQ question. I can't remember the exact specifics, but it was something along the lines of, say, 23-year-old Indian male comes in with a cough, and then, you know, what's the diagnosis? Uh, put you on the spot. Oh, like, just... In Indian on... male, 23, chronic cough. I'm, TB. I'm TB is like I'm assuming yeah. you're trying to lead me towards that, but yeah, exactly. prevalence, I would say. Yeah, but it just like it doesn't need to be okay. The extra information will give yeah. you more information. He, you've done a chest X-ray and you yeah. see these opacities in the in the in the apex of the lung. Um, that okay. Now you have your answer. But the thing is, is that as medics, if you've got ten minutes to see a patient, from the moment they step through the door, you begin assessing them and you begin ranking potential differential diagnoses yeah. if they're male more likely to be certain things if they're female more likely to be certain things if they're young female more likely to be other things if they're young 
young white female more likely to be other things young black female more likely to be something else right and you're not discounting anything but you're taking all the possible differentials and you're ranking them and every question you ask is about getting a better top couple of ranking like differentials we're using our gut like we're not sitting there thinking okay this is a 23 year old white female or a black female okay this is more likely okay let's ask about why she's is it coming. gut she or she is has, it pattern recognition pain. i think it's both but they're not are they not the same thing that you're relying on your gut your gut feeling is that unconscious subconscious ability to pick something up i don't think that most pcps or gps are going through every single differential what they're doing is they ask a couple of leading questions open questions and as soon as they get those answers the differentials start popping in their head right that popping of a differential in their head yeah is that gut feeling but you know what i think endometriosis is more likely to be the problem yeah. here let me ask a couple of questions to start seeing if that's true. Now it becomes a conscious decision, right? You're asking very specific questions to rule that diagnosis in and rule other red flag issues out. But when you, like, do you not, I think a lot of doctors get that initial feeling, oh, actually, I think I know what's going on here. That initial feeling is your gut feeling, and that's learned. We've seen it so many times. We've read it so many times. We've gone through four to six years of med school and we've had all these questions and what they've been doing is just teaching our gut to be better and better and better our gut is not just a random thing that just pulls things out of thin air it's our gut is based on lived and learned experience what's the difference between gut feeling and intuition same thing for me i think gut feeling and intuition are, are synonyms of each other like your intuition is that this is the right decision or not your gut feeling is that this is the right decision or not they're synonyms the same thing this gut feeling and intuition is what a lot of people feel distinguishes us from ai if all it is is pattern recognition can ai be human can it act like a human at some point i think most Probably yes. I'll, I'll ask a more esoteric question. Do you think we have a soul? Or are we <laughs> billions or trillions of synapses just firing uh, randomly? You you will get my pragmatic sciencey answer. We are bags of flesh, enzymes, proteins, water, ions. We live our lives and i think some people don't like to think about death and, and what happens afterwards but in my mind and when we're dead that's it right there's, there's nothing i don't think there's anything else that it seems incredibly it's a word it seems almost impossible that life could have sparked in the way that it did but when you start to realize that the actual time involved and how vast that is, suddenly you start to realize that we as humans just aren't built to understand certain things. If you ask someone, you know, there's that common thing you see on TikTok videos, Facebook videos of 
someone being told, okay, if you take a hun take one dollar bills and you have someone that earns a hundred thousand, how far do those bills go? And it's and let's say like a mile, hypothetically. If you now take a millionaire and take those one dollar bills, how far would it go? And people will say, well, if it's one mile, then well, one mile is not a good answer because it it expands out. But you know, let's say six hundred meters, maybe you know, hundred miles. But the actual answer is halfway around the world. And then you go to a billionaire and you yeah. say, okay, how many, how much would those those bills go? And people will say, oh, all the way around the world. When actually it's to the moon and back. Right, I guess just our ability to understand the size of things in relation to others is really, is not actually very good, right? We're good at small scale things. We're good at assessing something that's one centimeter to something that's a meter, but things like perspective and like even just our ability to quantify stuff. When you start talking about millions, hundreds of millions, billions, we have very poor understanding of kind of just how vast those numbers are. So actually, if it takes three billion years for, you know, things to be right, for a basic enzymatic pathway to begin, or a, uh, you know, like ATP pathway for energy creation, yeah, three billion years, like when you actually think about, or four billion years, or eight billion years, whatever it is, when you think about how long that is, actually, probably doesn't, it, it seems less in, uh, less insane of an idea. Because you also only need it to happen once. And then things can begin to grow. And then also going from first pathway to cell takes another billion years. And when you, again, think about how long a period of time that is, you suddenly realize, well, actually, I can see that through trial and error, if it's if it's happening multiple times a minute or even a second, how many variations have you gone through over a billion years? Well, one of them is going to stick at some point. Yeah, I think uh, our I agree we are terrible at quantifying larger numbers. I think a million seconds is twelve days, and a billion seconds is almost forty years. Yeah, it's. Yeah. Exactly. And like those kinds of things help us realize how bad we are at knowing the size and scale of things. There are some things we're good at and as humans we're built to do. There are other things that we as humans aren't built to do. Or we, we are built and built in a way that makes us pretty poor at doing them. So in terms of a soul, I, I don't think that we, we have a soul in the traditional sense. I think we as individuals have an essence, which maybe you could call a soul, but I think that essence is really what kind of makes us as individuals. But that's how our synapses and our neurons have been arranged, that as a child, you have all these neurons, they're all firing in multiple ways and in all these loops. And as you grow, you shed a lot of those pathways and you tailor those pathways to make a functioning adult. And even as an adult, you have you have plasticity in your brain to be able to adapt and change. And that's really the essence, right? It's that pattern of firing neurons in your brain and in your body that is you. There's no one else, and there will never be someone else 
like you is that a soul is that an essence is it just I, I don't know what you want to call it but soul in the traditional sense I personally am I, I'm I'm not a believer there will be no one like you until we map out your synapses and replicate you at which point i think even then it's difficult because nothing happens in isolation so your synapses you could map out your synapses but within your synapses now i'm forgetting my new and my neuroscience but you know you have you have your neurons but how those neurons actually structured will make a difference to how an electrical current passes through them. So you can map them out and you can build it, but how those neurons react based on how much water you've drunk during the day, for example, or how much you've eaten, whether you've gone for a run the day before, those make a difference to how your neurons act. And unless you spend time mapping out the specifics of how your neurons act to different scenarios, you won't be able to necessarily recreate that person. And even if you do spend a whole lifetime mapping out, okay, if someone's dehydrated, how do their neuron firing patterns change? If someone is has starved for a day, how do their neuron patterns change? Even if you spend a lifetime mapping it all out and understanding it, there'll still be edge cases where you haven't mapped out that specific scenario. Or there'll be, you know, gaps or holes that you haven't quite filled in building this knowledge base that you'll miss. So I think actually as individuals, you will be the one and only of you. The realization or the acceptance of the randomness of it all can be either incredibly freeing or incredibly scary. Mm. For me, it's freeing. It's freeing to know we're here for a minute amount of time and our scale of our existence, of our world is minuscule compared to the universe that it doesn't really matter. At mm. the end of the day, nothing matters. And you should live your life building the most value and creating the most joy you can. Well, that also isn't is based on your perspective. You say we're around for a minuscule amount of time. If if the if the Earth could talk, then yes, it would say each individual human is here for a minuscule amount of time because I've been around for the last however many billion years. But if you have a task to do and it's going to take you an hour and you've got a day to do it. That's a long amount of time, right? Like it's actually your perspective on on how long you have. If you're a 30 or a 40 year old, you might think that you're heading into middle age, true middle age, and life is short and you need to enjoy it. But actually, the difference between a 40 and a 45 year old is five years, right? That's the length of med school. Yeah. How much change happens between an 18 year old going into med school and a 23 year old coming out? a lot and there's no reason that amount of change or more can't happen to a 40 40 year old going from 40 to 45 it's a long amount of time if you want it to be a long amount of time it's a short amount of time and it'll go in a flash if you want it 
to be a short amount of time and go in a flash. So it's it's perspective. We live you know the length of time you know, this is gonna I don't I'm not sure exactly how to phrase it, but it's almost you know the how you see the length of your life is how you want to see the length of your life. You either live a short period and you have very little time on earth and then once it's done it's done or you have 80 odd years to live and enjoy and experience things on a second minute by minute day by day basis and, and to be honest we probably have differing views depending on how life is going how stressed we are whether we're, yeah. <laughs> we're feeling a bit depressed with where we are in life and but we we actually do cycle through all these different feelings so you know okay fine some people might say yes but you know then is your life inconsequential and and what are you living for if there's nothing else afterwards like i'm living i'm enjoying what i want to do now that's it nothing more yeah sherman if you and your family had a one-way ticket to mars would you go <laughs> no no not at all well, no it, it depends again right now no if well we'll we'll do a couple of scenarios right imagine that climate change continues to progress in a in this negative direction that we're heading and the world becomes rather inhospitable in 40 50 years time yeah it's potentially still be alive at that point but Mars has been colonized. Things are well set up. Everything's nice and hunky dory. Would I take a one way flight to Mars? Yeah, <laughs> of course I would. <laughs> but right now, where there is no framework or no setup on Mars, where the whole of my life is on Earth, and actually my life on Earth is pretty good. No, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go. Not now. Sorry again probably not the answer to the question you wanted <laughs> but again it's it depends different scenarios will warrant different responses so if you're asking would i go if elon musk called now and said you can have a one-way ticket to mars someone else can volunteer to do that if your previous startups came to you to ask for funding which one would you give funding and which one would you say no to and why? Ooh. So I've I've been involved and had a couple of startups in in the definite or that would be meet the definition of what we see as startups, kind of venture capital, venture fundable businesses. A lot of my businesses, however, have been what I now now know is called lifestyle businesses. They have positive cash flow pretty much from day one. They tick over nicely. They have some growth potential, but it's going to be fairly linear growth. So I, I think it's a little difficult. If you call them all startups in the sense of they're all early young businesses, I think the again going to, you know going back to my word it depends i would fund them in slightly different ways i had a i had a wholesale business i was distributing a, a particular product i was buying buying it wholesale and selling it 
it was a great business turnover it was a really nice cash flow business would i give that would i want equity in that company as a would i invest money like a vc would in that company no sure as hell wouldn't would i give that company a revolving line of credit yeah probably i'll make my five percent six percent interest on whatever money is coming out of the revolver I'll be happy with that, right? That's more than I'll get in any other investment account. And I can look at the financials of that company and see that it's been going for the last year or two. And it has really, really solid cash flow. Right? So would I fund that company? Well, if offering a revolving line of credit is funding, which in some ways kind of it is, yeah, I would do that for that business. I had started this tutoring company business with a couple of friends at university and you know we got it to the point where actually it was beginning to you know slowly still very early days right at the beginning of the curve it was in this section here but you could see where it was going and if you just see what other companies that started a little after us have done you know they had that typical hockey stick curve that venture capital firms are looking for that business 100% I would put money in because we were at the right time. We were at the cusp. The technology was good. Uh, we had early users. The MVP functioned and did everything that it needed to do. And we were unlike anything else on the market at the time. So that I'd 100% give money to. Are there any businesses I wouldn't give money to? So this one's going to be a bit unfair, mostly because it wasn't started by me. So I feel people might think I'm having a jab at someone else, but I'll I'll explain why I wouldn't give money to it. So there was a, a company I was involved with called Medhance that was all about educating patients on how to use and take their meds, how to kind of follow procedures, medical procedures properly. And it was great. And from a clinical perspective, I could absolutely see the value that it would bring to clinical practice. It would make patients better. They would be well-educated or there would be the education on their disease, their symptoms, their treatments would be better. And we do know there's a good solid evidence base to say that if patients are more educated on their diseases and their treatments, the outcomes are better. Great idea, right concept, really would do good in the world. But what's the business model? Right? In in the unfortunate world of healthcare that we live in, the way that money flows from one place to the other, it doesn't flow based on clinical outcomes, or primarily doesn't flow based on clinical outcomes. It flows based on the provision of services. And those services need to map to particular payment codes, right? They'd be, all these services are being codified and then you get certain payments based on which codes you, you can tick. That's true in the UK, that's true in the US, that's true in most, most Western world countries, if not most countries with you know, well-structured healthcare systems. Patient education system, what payment code does that tick? It doesn't, unfortunately, or it, maybe it's beginning to in the US, you're starting to get value-based care arrangements. And you, know, you could theoretically say that you could tap into some of that funding. It's darn difficult. 
Um, but that, you know, I think doesn't really meet muster for a VC investment because the business model doesn't exist. So yeah, there you go. Those would be my two answers or two parts of the answer. I've talked about this before, but outlining a financial ROI for your buyers is arguably more important than outlining a clinical ROI when you're a healthcare startup. Mm -hmm. What do you look for in founders and how much do you value previous founding experience? If the last, what has it been, probably hour hasn't teed up this answer, I'm not sure what else will. We spend a big chunk of this conversation talking about experiences, about having seen and done things that will inform you going forward. I don't think I could ever discount that. Prior founders do a better job of starting companies than first-time founders. So it's important, but it's also a bias. And so people like me, you, anyone else that invests in, in startups should understand kind of the basis of the bias. To what degree are first-time founders not as good as prior founders? Are there differences between industries? Are there different? If one if one founder had an exit, had built a company in, I don't know, machine vision, and sold that company, and now wants to build a healthcare company in patient workflows or in uh, I don't know, um, clinical workflow management, does that prior experience translate into this new business as well as? If the founder had had a prior company in building a patient front door, right? One probably relates to the other a hell of a lot more than than the other. So I think being a part-time, uh, being a first-time founder does put you at a slight disadvantage purely because you're learning everything for the first time. But at least when I'm asking founders, I'll actually put them through some scenarios. I'll I'll say, okay, well, you know, imagine that this were to happen. How would you approach that? And more often than not, the good first-time founders, the ones that really perform as well, if not better than prior founders, are the ones that can pull on experiences from outside of building a company because they, they haven't before, but pull an experience from somewhere else and see the relationship. So if it's, you're a first-time founder, you've got your company, you had some seed funding, you're now starting to get quite close to the end of your runway, but you haven't raised a follow-on, kind of how do you start to deal with that situation? Some founders will, some founders will flounder around in their answer, right? They'll give a bit of an answer, but not a particularly well thought through answer. But the good ones will say, well, you know what? I had this project that at, at the hospital where I was working and it was going on. It wasn't quite finished, but again, we were getting, we were running out of funding. So what we actually ended up doing was putting certain things on hold in the startup relationship. In startup world, that means 
sunsetting certain product features or slowing the roadmap down, they would say, um, we actually repurposed staff to other projects so that we could reduce the burn on that project. Well, they wouldn't say burn, but like reduce the expenditure on this project whilst we went back to the drawing board to come up with a plan so that we could apply for an extension of the grant. You know what that tells me is that that founder is willing to slow down on product roadmap to highlight features that are actually important to potentially let go of stuff to take a step back and say here's what we have done here's what we're doing here's how much money we need like put a plan of attack in place and then go approach fundraising in a really well organized manner and if they if they pull from an experience like that in they may not say all the right words but i guess that as someone that's investing in companies, I also need to read between the lines sometimes. So again, I'm not sure that I've necessarily answered your question, but I think first-time founders can be as good, if not better, than prior founders. Prior founders do tend to have the edge, but only in certain scenarios. And I think as an investor, you need to find out whether or not certain scenarios exist and therefore you can give weight to someone being a prior founder. Early on in a startup, I would say a distribution strategy is more important than the product itself. Do you agree with that statement? I will add a, a good distribution strategy allows you to iterate faster on your product, which seems to be a consistent marker of a successful startup is the speed of iteration and refinement. So I think yes and no, again, depends. Some companies, so there's one company that I know very well, they had a couple of options. So they were very early, they had started to build an MVP, they had an outline of it, and they had a few options in how to begin testing it. They had an academic medical center. They had a potential distributor that could have given them access to a few different um, sites. And they had some early inclination that the sites would be of interest. So they could have worked with more than one kind of first customer, pilot customer. You know, my advice to, my advice to them was for them specifically, they should find a small private clinical group that's no more than 30 or 40 minutes drive from where they live. They should just draw a ring in Google, type in, you know, that specialty, the, the, like type in that specialty, clinical specialty area, find all the groups that are within 30, 40 miles away and ring, find out who the clinicians are, start ringing and see if one of them will bite and be your first pilot customer. Then go there and be on site every other day and be part and parcel of making that product work. And you will learn more about what features work, what features don't work. They weren't clinicians. So you'll learn more about how clinical practice actually works. Like how long are people, some people will say, oh, people should fill this in before they go see the clinician if they're in the waiting area. But particularly in US healthcare, when someone's seen by a nurse first, then by a PA, and then by the doctor, actually, they may not spend that much time in the waiting area. 
will spend five minutes and then they'll get called by the nurse. And then the nurse is taking their blood pressure. They might take some bloods. They might do some weight, a height. Then they'll go back to the waiting area. Three and four minutes later, the PA will call them and ask them an initial set of screening questions. Then the patient stays in the room and five minutes later, the doctor comes and then finishes off the assessment. So if you have a five minute questionnaire for patients to fill in in the waiting area, when, when, when do the patients actually spend five minutes in the waiting area? Well, that whole concept should be binned because the clinical workflow for that practice or that type of practice just isn't amenable to your original idea. You'll only find that out if you're there on site. If you work with a big academic medical center that's in a different state, you're never going to go. You're never going to see all of this in action. You might get some feedback, but the clinicians that you'll be working with will be very busy, may have clinical studies that they're working on. They may have their own private practice outside of the hospital setting. They may have all these other things. If you go through the distributor and you work with three or four sites, you're going to be so spread thin that you aren't going to get good, valuable feedback and iterate. And so they started, they, they did exactly what I had recommended. And that gave them enough of a final product. And their product got to the point where they could then do a series to do their seed raise. And they had a good, you know, healthy seven figure seed raise because their MVP was good. And they had data from this clinician and their patients about how the product worked and how it would fit. They still had to come up with a good distribution plan. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you should just sideline your distribution plan. They had one. They had a good one. But straight off the bat, that wasn't the thing that was important. What they actually needed to do was make sure that their product met the, or actually solved the problem they were trying to solve. Cold calling and cold emailing is a superpower. <laughs> Every founder should force themselves to do it. Oh, absolutely. The, let's talk absolutely. about clinical. You know, going back to that whole thing of first-time founder versus prior founder, you ask that question, a good first-time founder will sit there and say, you know what, when I was at college, I used to wait tables and I would have to talk to 100 people that I'd never met every single day and ask them what they wanted tend to their needs bring them what they need deal with problems right and if you're a waiter in a restaurant there are problems galore right my food isn't right it's hot my steak's undercooked and deal with that in a good way i'm not sure how any of those skills are different from the skills i'd need to cold call people and find out what their problems are and how i might be able to help fix them like that to me is Taking a skill that you've learned in one place, seeing how it relates to what you need to do as a founder, yeah. and and use it. Right, um, I agree. Cold calling, cold emailing is yeah. is an art that you learn over time. I think a lot of people fear rejection. My response rate right now, when I cold email, cold call people, is I would say ten percent. In the past, it was likely 0.1 percent, but you have to do it there's yeah. no alternative there yeah exactly let's talk about clinical trials this is uh, this is the last question Sharon. okay the from an outsider perspective the clinical trials recruitment process seems very inefficient and overly reliant on health systems and hospitals 
whereas primary care is likely an easier target to acquire patients. Do you agree with that statement? And if so, why is it so inefficient? And for context, from my conversations, about 25,000 to recruit one patient for a clinical trial. Yeah, so you could, there are multi-day conferences on this topic multiple times a year. And even then, people haven't figured out kind of the root cause of the problem root causes, plural, of the problem and how to really address them properly. So we can scratch the surface on this now, but it's it's a whole big topic. And pharma is a multi, you know, multi-trillion dollar industry, or maybe it's a trillion dollar industry. And they have money because it's such a big industry. And a lot of the product and how they work is based on trial recruitment. So it isn't for want of trying, want of money, want of priority. There are just issues with the realities of how clinical trials work and function. So I'll give you an example that I'll try and tie into a larger thought. If you are a trial looking at colorectal cancer screening and you want to recruit patients that have polyps most patients in the u.s have their cancer have their colonoscopies done at at colonoscopy centers small small to medium-sized private groups so you'd think that that would be a great place to recruit patients the problem is that what do those centers and what do those clinicians do 90% of the time? Colonoscopies, that's their bread and butter. The more colonoscopies they can do, the more money they make. So if you're a trial and you want to recruit patients that have polyps, you go to these centers and let's say one of them says, okay, we'll refer patients to the trial that we find have you know, particular polyps. Patients then go to the trial site that's maybe an academic medical center and will go through the screening process, enroll in the study. That study may have a one-year period where a treatment gets given or a procedure gets done, and then they have a colonoscopy in 12 months' time. Where does that colonoscopy need to be done? At the academic medical center. Because it needs to be, the findings need to be done and recorded in a very particular way to be able to assess one patient to the next patient and to the next patient. Because if those that data goes to the FDA for a, an, an approval of a medical device, the FDA will say, make all the patients and the reporting needs to be standardized. And you can only do that if they're all done within one or two or a handful of centers. So actually what you've ended up doing for the private group is taking one of their patients and then having that patient do their following colonoscopy somewhere else, not at the private group. So what the private group has actually done is just lost someone, right? They've given a patient away. And that's the last thing that private groups want to do is lose patients that they're treating. So that's an example of kind of one of the issues with kind of just how trial recruitment works. Thinking about PCPs and primary care, they're great recruitment pathways 
one, there's an issue with identifying the right trials for the right patients. One PCP is seeing, let's say, 15 patients in the morning, 10, 15 patients in the morning, 10, 15 patients in the afternoon. They don't have time or even the headspace to think about more than one trial. So then you're competing against each other. Like actually, you might have five or six trials that want someone to be recruited from a PCP's office. So now the PCP needs to sit there and think, do any of these patients meet the trial criteria, the inclusion exclusion criteria? So, okay, the PCP doesn't have time. Maybe a nurse can do it. But then that's a nurse time spent on trial recruitment, not on other patient clinical care tasks. So then the pharma company maybe has to pay for the nurse's time in finding those patients. But then is it worth spending money on that nurse's time if one PCP practice can only recruit, let's say, one patient a week? If you are trying to do a thousand-person study and have recruitment done in, let's say, five months, six months, it's, it's not feasible to have 100 primary care practices where you're funding a nurse to do the inclusion exclusion criteria and fill your trial funnel, your recruitment funnel. Just... I'm assuming there are AI startups scanning EMR data to do this already. Yeah, so there are a whole bunch of startups. It's actually a really exciting time. There are a whole bunch of startups that are helping with trial recruitment because trial recruitment, as you said, is such a big problem and costs so much money. There are a plethora of ways in which you can help address the problem. There's one company that um, I'm an advisor for called New Root. Their whole thing is around looking at social messaging, social content, mm -hmm. and using that to start to understand patients, understand where they are, start to put trial information in front of those patients, so that if you have a trial that's recruiting out of an academic, academic medical center, the only patients that are recruited into the trial are patients that come for an appointment at the center. Patients that go to that center are within a certain catchment area, but there are overlaps between centers. Right? There's, it's almost like a Venn diagram. There are three hospitals where I live in Manhattan that are within 20 minutes drive. I've got Sinai, Cornell, and Northwell, all about 30 minutes away from each other. So what happens if Northwell is recruiting for a trial that I could participate in, but I go to Columbia? I'll never know that trial exists, but I'm 30 minutes away. So what Neuroot is trying to do is to say, based on conversations and material that I'm posting, I most likely have this particular disease that I'm geographically located within 30 minutes of the trial site. So let me put this information in front of you because then I can reach out to Northwell and maybe get enrolled in this study. That's one issue. That's tackling the issue of patients being in between different sites and maybe not going to the one site that's recruiting. There's another study that's looking at uh, there's another company that we that I know that uses metadata, EHR metadata, to help hospitals identify what patients they have and whether or not they have enough patients that could help with recruitment. Seems silly, 
but hospitals often don't know their patient populations particularly well. You'd think they would because they have EHR systems, but data in the EHR systems may not be always up to date, but also getting that information out of an EHR can be really difficult. So trial sponsors will usually go to academic medical centers that have done trials in the past because those hospitals have a good handle on what patients they have in their population and therefore can say, yes, we can help with recruitment or no, we can't. If I went to a hospital in the middle of New Jersey that's never really been involved with trials, and I said, I'm looking for 500 type 2 diabetics, female between the age of 55 and 75, do you think you have 500 of them? The hospital will say, come back to us in a couple of months and we'll tell you. So what this company does is allows that hospital to deliver a metadata extract i.e. it has zero patient identifiable information in that. So they can pull that within a day and send it to the startup. The startup can use quite advanced analytics to take that metadata and extrapolate the types of patients in the population. And then the startup can tell the sponsor, yes, this hospital can probably recruit the 500 patients or no, they have maybe two or 300 patients that meet the enrollment criteria max. Now suddenly sponsors can choose better sites because if the rural hospital has the patients that's probably the only study they're recruiting for therefore all their time and energy is spent on recruiting patients for your study as opposed to an amc that might have a hundred studies going on at any one time and therefore recruitment may be split between different studies right studies are competing against each other as you can see, I could just continue on and on and on. There are there are an infinite number of issues with trial recruitment. And even just how, how studies are designed, some of that is for scientific purposes, some of that is for regulatory purposes, and some of that is for ethics and for compliance purposes. <clears throat> how trials need to be designed impacts how you can do recruitment. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot. Again, you could go on for days. You could talk for days on this topic. I think we need to do a part two. <laughs> we didn't really talk enough, I feel, about investing or healthcare. <laughs> so we should do a deeper dive into pharma and clinical trials. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, this has been incredibly informative, Sharon. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for asking. <laughs>